Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to turn back to Proverbs chapter 28. And, uh, you know, again, uh, last week we looked at some great principles that uh, I think they're invaluable to us as we uh, grow in the Word of God and, and, and begin to put those things in our life that God would have for us. And we talked about how that a righteous man will always give the uh, glory to God when, he, when he's praising and happy about what God is doing and, uh, and all that God has done not only to him but through him and uh, the things that God has brought into their lives. We saw a great principle that when the wicked rise up, and uh, it's always a man hidden. And we talked about that, and that's a great, great concept too. A great key to the issues that we face with people, you know, always knowing that behind every issue you want to look for the hidden man. There will always be somebody, some man, some woman, somebody who is stirring things up and, and, and causing discord or problems. And, uh, you know, I always, I always like those puzzles. Remember, I don't know if you saw them, that they, you get a picture and it says, find the dog and it's got a whole bunch of contracted stuff in there, people, places, and you've got to really study it. And, and, and the dog is blended into the picture, like with somebody's arm or somebody's leg or somebody's suit coat or somebody's that. And you got to, the dog is not a parent, and you've got to really, really look and study it. And then as you go over it, all of a sudden, there's the dog right in front of you. You just couldn't see it. I've always liked puzzles like that. And in any situation, wherever you go in life, dealing with people, uh, it sometimes can be like a puzzle. But that hidden man will pop out when you just study it and you just look and see, or a woman, will, uh, as you put it all together. And it was a great verse uh, for us and a great, some great teaching that you want to remember. And then a great verse in verse 13, you know, not to cover our sin, but rather to confess them and, and, and to forsake them. And what a great principle that was, you know, when, uh, you know, and I'll tell you, and people, you know, people are kind of, strange sometimes when it comes to their talking to God and you know when I need to get right with God which is probably about every 45 seconds when I shut up when I need to get right with God I'll tell you what I've learned and the guy that just said amen has never learned this and I don't even know who it was when I get got, get right with God I've learned that uh you know what you just just talk plain just talk plain you don't try to lessen what you did or, or make it seem like it's not so bad. You, you just talk plain to him. And I would think that that would be just a natural thing that somebody, but you know why you just talk plain to him? Because it's already plain to him. Amen. And he just wants you to come and, and lay it out. And I, I, gave you, I gave you two great keys to our staying right with God. One of them was confessing it. The other one was forsaking it. And, you know, don't bother confessing it if you're not going to willing to forsake it. A lot of things in Christianity, we like to, the Bible teaches it in a, in a more in, incredible way, you know, where you've got two or three aspects to it. But we like to take the aspects that we just like. Everybody wouldn't have a problem with confessing your sin. It's forsaking it that's the problem. You know, we talk about, you know, uh, uh, forgiveness, reconciliation and all those things. And, you know, most people, you know, I've read books and books and books over the years and talked to people. Everybody, everybody talks about forgiveness, but nobody talks about forgetting. I mean, the aspect of God's forgiveness for you, not only did God forgive you, he forgot it. And, of course, we hear lots about, well, you need to forgive. Yeah, but also, I always say this. If you can forgive, you can forget. But if you can't forgive, you can forget it. And, and that is so true today. You, I mean, and, and, and somebody would say, well, how in the world do you forget? Well, let me ask you a question. How in the world did Jesus forget? You know what? First 19 years of my life, I did some of the most horrendous things that, that you could ever believe. And, you know, and so did most of you. Maybe longer than that. But you know what? When you got saved, God not only forgave you, he forgot what you did. Now, let me ask you a question. This would be a good Thursday night Bible question. How does God who knows everything forget it's a great question. Well, it's the same way that when you really get a biblical understanding of forgiveness that you forget. And it's an incredible thing. It's just like confessing and forsaking. A lot of things in the Bible that way. You know, and I told you that the two key books in the Bible uh, as for God's people was the Gospel of John, which lays out salvation, and then First John that lays out fellowship. Here again, 
Just like, you know, confessing and forsaking, like forgiveness and forgetting. These two books go together. One shows you the aspect of salvation the day God saved you. Once you're saved, the other one shows you how to stay in fellowship with him through the confessing of your daily cleansing in your life. It's like the book, here's another one. It's like the book of Romans and Galatians. Romans is the great book that teaches you that you're saved by grace and faith. Galatians is a great book that shows you that you're kept by grace and faith. One shows you how you get saved. The other one shows you how God keeps you. And it's the way the Bible lays itself out. And most people don't ever get to the depth of that because they just don't understand the scriptures to that length or that depth when you get all the bottom line of what he's trying to say. Now, today we're going to go through a few more verses and we're going to begin uh, to tie uh, it together uh, as a complete picture of what God is showing us like we did, uh, we did last year, uh, last week. So I want to read for you Proverbs chapter 28, and we're going to look at verses 14, 15, and 16. It says, Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. As a roaring lion and a raging bear, a ranging bear, so is a wicked ruler over the poor people. The prince that wanteth understanding is also a great oppressor. But he that hath covetous, hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Dale to stand up and, uh, and, and bless it. He wanted to thank everybody for those that helped move them yesterday, which we did. So go at it, Bozy. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Thank you, Bozy. It was a pleasure to move you. You need to thank us. If you don't do what's right, we're going to move you back. I'll just let you know that. <laughs> now, verse 14 <laughs> says, Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardened his heart shall fall into mischief. Now, verse 13 uh, this week, uh, or uh, last week, and verse 14 this week, what we just read, will we'll really go together. Confessing and forsaking our sins. Simply a man who fears God will respect God's warning in the Bible about sin. Martin Luther was a great, great man, and uh, his life story is incredible. And is, uh, in a lot of ways, church history from uh, the 1500s on really revolves around a lot that he did, bringing in the Reformation in, in, in Germany. And uh, he, uh, he said one time, he says, as Christians, we need to keep short accounts with God. Well, that's some great advice. We need to keep those accounts of sin in our life to a very minimum. You know, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We looked at that last week. And for you and for me, you know, there's three key aspects uh, that the world, uh, and unfortunately most of God's people, will never really totally understand. The first one, and it says here in verse 14, happy is the man. The first thing that people don't understand, especially God's people, the world has no clue, but God's people should, is the concept of happiness. I mean, everybody wants to be happy. You know, everybody. We spend our whole life uh, doing and adding and looking for things that we actually think that will make us happy. And of course, you know, that's, that's a sad lesson in life that things of this world that we try to bring into our world will only bring a temporary happiness if it'll even do that. It simply won't last. You know, I call it new car smell Christianity. Everybody buys a new car. We all love the smell. You know, oh, I just love this new car smell of this car. And you want to protect that as long as you can. They even sell cans now of, of new car smell, you know. If it doesn't work in your car, it's great deodorant. <laughs> okay, you know what I mean? But everybody that buys a new car, oh, I know, <clears throat> the great smell. You get in that car for the first time, and it's just like, it, it, it's the reality that you've got a brand new car. 
You can get a program card. It's been used. They, I don't care what they do to it. It doesn't have that smell. Uh, there's only one thing that has that smell. That is a new car. And when you buy a new car and you get in it for the first time, the smell overwhelms you in a good way. And it's a thing where it, it's, hey, I got a new car. I love that smell. And in our minds, we try to project that new smell as long as we can to keep the new car alive because, hey, let's face it, by the time you have it for three or four months and you take the kids to school and one of them sick and throws up in it and the dog takes him to the vet and he gets hair all over it. And, you know, and by the time you get to the place where, you know, your, your, your spouse, uh, you know, you're going out to go someplace and he gets a cup of coffee or she gets a milkshake and, you know, and you have to stop and it's all over the floor. New car smell goes. Just doesn't last. And, you see, and for a, real, for a Christian, real happiness will only come through the aspect of joy. And when you have the joy of God in your life, it's like that new car smell of your life of the new Christian just continues on forever. And the things in life don't take that away from you. Bible makes it clear that when we talk about the Lord or when God looks at the church, it talks about a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. You know when that sweet savor in his nostrils started? The day you, day you got saved. Yeah, did you ever buy a new house? A new house has got a great smell to it. I mean, it's all new stuff, you know, new sheetrock and new paint and you walk in there nobody's ever lived in it before i mean you walk in there and it's just it's like the car this is a new house and it makes you happy well the day you got saved god smelled the sweet savor of you getting christ saved in christ and god said that really pleases me now they're a clean temple now you lose the smell in your car and you lose the smell in your new house but as a child of god we should never lose that smell of our temple always smelling good to god and how do we do that? We do that because of the fact that we have real happiness will only come with joy. And that's the key to the Christian life. I mean, life for a Christian is just a very simple formula. It's not complicated. We like to make it complicated, but it really isn't. You know, we saw the text last week that that uh, 1 John chapter 1, that joy will be in our lives only through our fellowship. So if you want happiness, you've got to have joy. And if you want joy... The Bible says if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That's the only way you get it. And this is why I've never understood. Well, I do, but I don't, but I do. This is why I, I, sometimes I don't get why some of God's people get so miserable with life. Why, why they just, you know, they, they, they just, they don't have any joy in their hearts. There's nothing that, you know, that really uh, changes. I mean, they just, they lost that new car smell in their life. And they've lost that joy of the day it was that you just got saved. Remember the day you got saved? Remember how you didn't care? I mean, your mom just called and said your dog died. And you said, that's okay. Praise the Lord. I mean, the house burnt down and you said, Jesus is Lord and keep on moving. That moment when Christ came into our lives and saved us is the greatest single day of your life. It's the day when God injected you, not only with his Holy Spirit, with, but with the joy of your salvation. And I'm telling you... <clears throat> The key for the Christian is to keep that going. And there is the secret for our happiness. You'll never be happy outside the Lord. I don't care what you try to bring into your life. And I don't care what comes into your life. Nothing will take that joy if it's really biblical joy based on your fellowship. Because at the end of the day, it'll put the priorities in your life that most of the things in life that we get upset about really don't matter. And I can't think of anything that I'm going to allow in my life that's going to take that joy. I mean, I'm just not. It isn't worth it to me because I know that in that joy is the fellowship that I have with him that he's going to work it all out. It's okay. And that joy is clearly based on my fellowship with him. And one more aspect to it, the verse today, and fearing God is the key to our fellowship. Proverbs 28, 14. You know, it's a thing where, you know... Most people think that they don't have a real understanding of God. <clears throat> they think that when they do something wrong, God is, is waiting to get them. And I've obviously dealt with people that just think, well, God is out to get me. Well, if, you know, then you need, and get saved. Because <clears throat> the only time God is out to get you is when you need to get saved. And once you get saved, he's not out to get you. He's out to help you. And I, they get the idea that, you know, oh, I just screwed up this week. So God's standing around the corner and he goes, ah, Cancer comes your way. Oh, bad car wreck. 
Then they live in their whole life of fear that because maybe they're not doing what's right or they made some mistakes in life that God's going to come down and kill them. Well, you know what? You don't fear God that way. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 11 is probably the greatest definitive chapter, a part, portion in the Word of God, uh, that shows you to help to understand God's chastisement. And yes, as a child of God, I fear the hand of God and chastisement uh, for myself as, I, as any child of God should. But it isn't like God's going to get out to get me. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we have had parents that correct us. How much more shall we give reverence to the father of spirits that live? Your kid, your mom and dad growing up disciplined you. I hope they did. They, they, they gave you a, a whipping when you needed it. They, they dealt with you, rebuked you whenever you needed it. They didn't let you just grow up and live your life like you wanted to live it because they wanted it the best for you. And, and most of you or all of you here today that are worth your salt with God is somebody that you had parents in your life or at least somebody in your life who, who helped you but kept you accountable and didn't get a, let you get away with a lot of things that you, we wanted to get away with. And if you can understand that and see the value of where you're at right now, how much more should you be able to understand that in your spiritual relationship with God? And the Bible says that when God comes down and he chastises you and me, he does it because he loves us. He does it because he wants to perfect holiness in us. He does it because he wants us to be better in what we're doing. The Bible says if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to them that ask you? And if our, in, our, in our earthly life as sinners, if a mom and a dad can see the value in chastising their kid or dealing with their kid or keeping their kids in line or correcting them or whatever you got to do in the chastisement mode of that relationship, how much more can we give God that ability to do that? And the Bible says that I get it. No chastening seemeth to be joyous for the uh, joyous but a moment, but grievous. I understand that. I had both my little daughters when they were growing up, and I had to give them whippings. I never enjoyed it. I mean, I, there's a biblical process. You do that, and I remember both Kelly and Jamie. You know, they they got they got in trouble, and I had to take them in there and, and whip them, and they know what's coming. I mean, they were like six or seven years old, you know, and uh, um, Jamie was like 28 or 29. I can't remember exactly how old she was. <laughs> but I remember, I remember Kelly in particular one time. You, I remember what you did. I don't know, you, you shot the neighbor's dog or whatever you did. I'm not sure. She's just a little bit of a girl, and I have to discipline her. And it was tough because she knows what's coming, and I would sit down, and I would go through the biblical process, you know. Hey, look, I'm going to have to give you a whip, and in a minute, they, they start to cry, <clears throat> and it's a thing where, you know, I make them lay over the bed, pull their, their little butt buns there was the hardest thing in the world to try to whip. I don't want to do that. But I knew that if I did not do it, what I was going to have on my hands later on in life with both of them. And it wasn't something I looked forward to, but it was something that I had to do because in good parenting, that's what you do. And then you go through the whole process, you know, and you know, and I, I, for, for parents and your kids, when your kids do something wrong, you build your kids' lives to the point where when they do something wrong and you have to deal with them, that they're not upset over the fact that they're going to get a whipping, but they're upset over the fact that they have broken fellowship with mom and dad. That's the key that you want to build your children to. Because that's the key that God wants to build us to. There's been times in my life when God's given me a good whipping. But times in your life when he's given you a good whipping. In my life, I can't speak for you, but in my life it wasn't a bad. I knew I deserved the whipping. And I took the whipping. But the bottom line is what really upset me was the fact that I let him down. Amen. And when you can instill that in your children, then you got something. And it's a thing where to you and for me, you know, chastisement when God comes down is, is, not, is something we need to fear because don't we just fear for that, but if God doesn't correct us, the real fear is what you're going to lose at the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 11, that, that afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of God. It brings you back to fellowship, and that's what God wants. 
The second aspect is the fear of God's judgment for an unsaved man or an unsaved woman. And when a person has a healthy fear of God and his judgment in eternity without God in the lake of fire or hell, you know, it brings them to Christ. They realize that uh, they're headed on the wrong road. So fearing the Lord for the Christian is the catalyst for our fellowship, and it, it, fellowship brings our joy, and it's from the joy that we have our happiness. And all my life, you know, I've heard them say, well, preachers just preach hate. They just preach fear. They're just trying to scare you. And I've heard that all my life, and I always think to myself, you know, fear is a God-given emotion, and it's probably one of the healthy emotions that we all have. Fear will keep you from killing yourself. Fear will keep you from doing something stupid. I mean, I see these people that go out here to Colorado and these bridges that are, you know, 10 million feet high, and they're doing bungee jumps. Now, you've got to be pretty stupid to do a bungee jump at 10,000 feet or 5,000 feet or 2,000 feet. Hey, for me, 10 feet. <laughs> and, you know, and they stand up there and, you know, and, and there have been many people killed because you're putting the ha- your hand and your life in the hand of a guy who's making sure that the rope length is right. I mean, it was a great bungee jump all the way to the guy forgot and added 10 feet to it and you went into the ground and then you bounced back up. Headless, but you came back up. I mean, to me, those things are weird. And it's a thing where, you know, electricity is another thing. Electricity, I was an electrician for a while, and it used to scare me to death. I was working downtown in Plaza Plaza 10 or 21 down there off the plaza one time, and we had to do uh, change-out plugs that were 270 volt. Yeah, that's hot stuff. Well, it was hot because we couldn't shut it down. And I, I, don't, I don't know what I did, but I'm, I'm changing that thing out and I hit something wrong. It, it burnt the whole end of my screwdriver, threw me all the way across the room. People come running in, wanted to call 911, thought it killed me. And, you know, I'll tell you what, it, I, I was, I'm, sc- I'm scared of electricity. Amen. I don't know that much about it. You know, the toughest time was it? The hardest time that I was scared me wasn't when I got shocked. It was when I had to go back in 15 minutes and do the next one. I put on my rubber boots, my rubber glove, my rubber hat. I was going to insulate it, pal. I wrapped myself in newspaper. I mean, I was insulated. But I'm scared. And, and sometimes fear will keep you from really doing something stupid. But you know what? The young generation today, they don't, they don't have any fear. There was a girl or somebody out in Blue Springs or Green Valley, one of those places the last week, and I feel bad for them. But you ever see kids just driving down the street and they're hanging out of the car window, sitting on the ledge up here, you know, or laying back. She fell out. The car behind her ran over. It's a terrible thing. You'd never catch me doing that. I mean, that's not the most comfortable place to ride anyhow. But you realize the danger in that? And I'll tell you something else. I was driving down the road one day in my, you know, in my car and there's a car over here and there was a, you know, the lane between us and here come... Where's Sam Amaro at? Yeah, okay. Here, co- yeah, okay. Here, Sam, here comes a guy. Oh, where's Josh at? Okay, well, anyway, here comes a guy on a motorcycle with a wheelie on his back wheel right between both of us. And I guess he's, supposed, he's thinking we're going to say, wow, cool. <laughs> You've never done that, have you, Sam? No, you better not. Cause, well, you won't worry because we're going to sell those motorcycles. Why don't you take them over to the garage sale at Joe uh, Gowan's next to me? I need you. You better not get hurt anymore. But crazy, man. Kids do stupid things. Down in Payola, when I used to work down there, I, highway patrol, I got to know all the cops, you know. And Every year, graduation time, uh, they always had some kids that were killed in car wrecks. And they'd always be having their funerals. And down there, they do hill jumping, where they get in a car and they go real fast over a hill and they come off the ground and hit it. And you know what? No fear. I wouldn't do that. You kidding me? My car doesn't go fast enough to get off the ground, but I wouldn't do it anyhow. That's crazy stuff. Uh, You know, here's what the bottom line is. In most cases, we're afraid of everything in life except what we ought to be afraid of. That's the bottom line. 
Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that Noah moved with fear. Somebody says, ah, you just preach about fear. Bible says Noah moved with fear and the preparing of the ark of the saving his household. The saving of your household will require you to fear some things. But God's people don't fear anything today. Bible says Job feared God, Job chapter 1, verse 1, and he eschewed evil. Eschewed is an old English word. I mean, he stayed away from it. If you're going to stay away from and eschew evil, you're going to have to fear some things. Psalms 96, verse 4 says that he is to be feared above all gods, our God. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, it says, Fear not them which are able to kill the soul, of kill the body, but rather fear them that are able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We fear everything but what we ought to fear. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And fear that grace relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Fear is healthy. And I, Bob Jones Sr. said at one time, he said, you better better off being hell scared than hell scorched. And the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 6, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And a child of God is at his or her best with a healthy fear of God producing the fellowship that produces the joy that produces the happiness. And then through that, walking in the light as he have, in the light, having fellowship one with another. First John chapter 1, verse 7. Then the last part of, of that verse. But he that hardeneth heart shall fall into mischief. Now, without a doubt, there's always examples in the Bible. I tell you all the time that uh, in the Bible, there's models for everything. And you just learn about, learn the models. It makes life a lot simpler. And without a doubt, the greatest example of this will be found in Exodus chapter 1 through 7, uh, dealing with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and the children of Israel trying to get delivered out of Egypt. But in particular, it'll be chapter 10, verse 20, where the Bible clearly says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, here's the storyline. Israel's been down in Egypt now for 430 years. And they cried out to God, and God has sent them a deliverer, and that man is Moses. We know that. And then through chapter 7 through chapter 12, Moses and Pharaoh kind of go at it. Moses says, let my people go. He says, I'm not going to let them go. And, and the story itself, if you want to get the side notes to it, the story itself is, is, is a great New Testament principle. You know, it, it teaches that they're down in Egypt and the devil is trying to destroy them. No question about that. But God's got them down there, not so the devil can destroy them. Sure, they went through some really hard, rigorous times. But the devil looks at it to try to destroy them. God looked at it to make them a strong nation that when he did bring them out, they would be ready to go. And the great principle is that the adversity that you will face in life, that I will face in life, you got a choice, pal. You can either let it break you or you can let it make you. You can let the adversity bring you to God or run away from God. It's that simple. We always look at the adversity of, you know, the things come into our lives, and we always look at the downside of it, you know, and always trying to get God to take it away, take it away. You know, the first thing I do, first thing I do is look at my own self and sign out if I did something screwy that caused this mess. I look at my own life and say, Lord, have I been in the book? Have I been doing what you want me to do? Am I growing? Am I doing this? Am I doing what you called me to do? And if the answer is no, then that might be a reason why you're going through some of the adversity. But if you can check all those things off and you still have adversity in life, my greatest advice to you is to enjoy it. Amen. I, that's a hard thing to say, but you've got to learn how to enjoy it because at the end of the day, you know that whatever you're going through if you're right with God, no hand formed against you is going to prosper. And nobody's going to hurt you. And at the end of the day, what we view as hurt will come to the point where God will take it like he did to the nation of Israel. You think anybody down there in slavery for 430 years actually thought that this was really a blessing? I mean, the... <coughs> Don't bless that. I'm going to have a preach next week on where blessing, when you say bless you after you sneeze, where it really comes from, and you don't want to do it anymore. But thank you. If I, if I have another one come your way, I'll let you know. But I don't know what that was all about. Oh, I know it was. 
New car smells always do that to me, but anyway. <laughs> you know, they've been down in Egypt now, and you know, nobody down there thought that what they were going through was a good thing. I mean, they lost their parents, their grandparents. They died for four generations. Four generations died down, or three died down there. But yet when God was bringing them out, God knew that what they had to face to be his nation, they had to be tough and they had to be strong. And in fact, that the devil wanted to destroy them, God said, I'm going to use that same thing that he wants to destroy them with, and I'm going to make them with it. And that's what he'll do for you and for me, growing through our problems. You know, instead of, of getting an attitude in our problems, blaming others for all of our problems, realizing that the problems we in, even when we screw up and we cause the problems, when you start to do what's right and want to do what's right, if you just keep the right attitude and quit blaming everybody else, God will take that and give you a pathway back and use it for, for everything that he needs for it to be. Now, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we're talking about a hardened heart here that'll fall into mischief. And boy, if anybody did, that would be Pharaoh. But this is where the Calvinists now, predestination crowd, display themselves as brain dead when it comes to the Bible. They cannot grasp this verse or connect it with Proverbs 28, or nor can they do it to connect it to Romans 9 or Romans 11. And here's what the, that verse is a favorite of a Calvinist, chapter uh, 10, verse 20, where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And their teaching is on it that, that uh, you know, that uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't have a choice in it. And that Pharaoh is one of those unfortunate people that the Calvinists teach that some are predestined to be saved and some are predestined to die and go to hell. And if you happen to be the one that was predestined to go to heaven, praise the Lord. And if you're happy to be the one who predestined to go to hell, enjoy it, I guess, life, because you ain't going to get to heaven. And that's probably one of the goofiest things that, that ever come down the pike. Sometimes it's called Calvinism. Sometimes it's called Reformation theology. But the bottom line is, with just a little Bible study, which is probably a lot for them, uh, it, it will reveal some great things. I know the Bible says that in chapter 10, verse 20, that uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But if you're a Bible student, you will find in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, Exodus chapter 8, verse 32, Exodus chapter 9, verse 34, and Exodus chapter 9, verse 35, that five times before 1020 says that God hardened his heart, the Bible tells you that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Five times he had a chance to do what was right and wouldn't do it. Five times before God ever touched his heart. Five times he said himself, I'm going to harden my heart. And the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Five times before God ever touched it in chapter 10, verse 20. And here's another great, here's another great principle. Five times God gave him a chance to do right and he wouldn't do it. So God just took the hardened heart that he already had, the hardened heart that he willingly chose to disobey God's commandment through Moses, and God destroyed him with it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 says that in the great house, God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And the great thing about that is we get to choose which one we are. When we came down the assembly line in eternity before God put us down this earth, you didn't have some that were spray-painted vessels of honor and others spray-painted vessels of dishonor. Everybody was spray-painted with a free will. And then God's Holy Spirit comes down through people and places and everything that he does to that God is not willing that any should perish. And then we choose, just like Pharaoh. And this idea that God just came down and, and poor old Pharaoh just hardened his heart. You're out of your mind, man. Five times God, that he, he hardened his heart first. And God come down and dealt with him. And God took the honor and glory out of his destruction. And that's another great lesson. I'm going to tell you something. God wants the honor and glory out of everything that we are and everything that we do. He demands that. He deserves that because he's a holy God. And everything that Bible says that God created in Colossians chapter 1 and all the other places and everything that God created, God created for his honor and glory. 
Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells you that. And God is going to get honor and glory out of everything. Now, we get to choose. We can choose to be a vessel of honor, and God will use your life to be a vessel of honor and get the honor and glory out of it, and everybody will see what God did, like Ruthie yesterday, like John Gowans the week before. Or we can choose to be a vessel of dishonor, harden our heart toward God like Pharaoh did, and you know what? God will still come down and whack you, destroy you maybe, and then God will get the honor and glory out of that. One way God gets you out of glory out of it, where somebody says, wow, look at that guy. Look at, look at Ruthie. Boy, I'll tell you what, what a testimony it is. Boy, praise the Lord. That's really good. I, I just really thank God for that. Or you'll live your life like a drunk. You'll live your life the way you want to live it. You'll do your own thing. You'll never do a thing for God. You'll come down and everybody knows you're a Christian and you're not doing what's right. And then you'll wind up dying someplace or go, worse, get into a real mess in your life. And everybody will say, wow. You know what, boy, that wasn't the hand of God. I, I don't want that happening to me. Either way, God will get the honor and glory out of it. Because he demands it. He deserves it. And when a man hardens his heart toward God and, and, and the things of God, he only, it only gets worse. Bible says he falls into mischief. Now, mischief, it's an old English word. It doesn't really mean what it really means in the Bible. You know, mischief to us is just like, you know, you stole a cookie out of the cookie jar. You got into mischief. It's much graver than that in the Bible. It really is. And in the Bible, it, it carries it all with the, the devil and the Antichrist, you know, as I said, when, when we give our heart to God, then he takes it and he uses it for his honor and glory, and we get the blessings out of it. And when we harden our heart and go against God, like Pharaoh did, then he'll take that hardened heart and use it again for his honor and glory, just like he did Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, after Pharaoh hardened his heart, wouldn't let him go, and God came down and whacked him. It says, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee that my name might be declared through all the earth. Hey, I want to tell you something. Long after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and had to deal with Pharaoh, they're going down there through the lands uh, that are the other nations. And some of those nations, yes, they try to stop them and don't want them in. But you know what some of the other nations do? They say, oh, you're the nation of Israel. You're Mr. Moses. Thank you very much. I'll tell you what, good to meet you. No, you just come through our land. You do whatever you need to do. If you want to stop for water here, you want to camp here, you want to put your porta potties over here, you want to do whatever you want to do. You just have at it. And he said, well, I appreciate that. Why are you so kind? Because we have heard what your God did to Pharaoh. And we don't want him doing it to us. They feared God, see? God will get the honor and glory out of everything. And God will use what simply what we give him. If you give him the right attitude of heart toward him, then he'll use that. If you harden your heart toward him, then he'll use that. It's just that simple. In all my ministry, uh, you know, I, I've seen God's people develop an attitude toward God and what he, he wanted them to do, just like Pharaoh. Amen. I mean, they, they, Pharaoh is a type of the world. He's a type of the devil. And I've seen God's people who I knew were saved. Something doesn't go right for them or they, they don't get what they want the way they want it. And suddenly, you know, they get an attitude toward God. They get an attitude toward the church. They get an attitude time for the very people who tried to help them. That's just the way it is. And where for a child of God, it all starts uh, with a world system under the devil uh, who controls everything in this world. And when you put yourself into that, Job chapter 41, verse 24, and I've told you many times, Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 are two of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the devil and how he operates. Revelation chapter 12 and 13 are the two in the New Testament. But 41, 24 says this about the devil, his heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of nether millstone. Not the devil. His heart is completely hardened against God. There isn't one ounce of anything that he cares about God or one things of God, and that's the way the world runs. And when you as a child of God put yourself into that world of Pharaoh, Egypt, you develop the same heart attack. Hey, it's simple. You get into church, get into the Bible, get saved, you get God's attitude of heart, and you move that way. You get into the world, get out of church, and do what you're doing, then you get the other heart and move that way. It's not complicated. And in Job chapter 9, verse 4, oh, what a great verse. It says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. 
who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? The answer is nobody. Not your grandma, not your Uncle Pete, not your Aunt Mabel. Nobody. Nobody has ever hardened their heart against God and prospered. And you got to let that verse sink into your head because you're into the illusion. Well, I'll give it to you. If you want to see this verse in action, let's all turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Let me just read it for you. You want to see this concept in, in full play? Here we go. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. Start there. Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or, or tribe. Well, he's covering all the bases. It can be a man, it can be a woman, it can be your family. Or it could be your tribe. That's for all you American Indians out there. <laughs> Here it comes. Whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God. And go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass. Now here's the person that has turned his heart away from God. Here's, here's a bunch of God's people that you're going to meet in life. And it come to pass when the, who heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my mind, uh, mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. Now there it is. You know what he's saying? Here's a guy who walks away from God Somebody preaches to him or somebody talks with him about it or whatever and tells him that there's a root of bitterness and wormwood going to come into your life. What does the guy do? Don't judge me. He blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace. Wow. If that's your idea of peace, brother, I hate to see a bad day. Though I walk in the imagination of my heart. That's the worst thing you can do. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful, licking above all things. And then add to it your imagination to it. Look what happens in verse 20. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. And all the curses that are written in his book shall lie upon him. And the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and Lord will separate him unto evil out of all the tribe. Boy, that's a great verse you don't ever want in your life. God's separating you out unto evil. <laughs> That'd be a rough one. And the Lord shall separate him un, uh, unto evil out of the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. Hey, I want to tell you something. Now, I know that was given to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament, but God wrote you a book, and God gave you a book with the laws and the statutes of what God wanted and what God expected of us, and when we don't do it, and how many of God's people take that thing right there? It's the fact that we like to take the Bible where it works for us, but when it goes against what we want to do or believe, then we don't want it anymore. We like to go to church until the guy preaches on something that's our pet sin that we don't want to, we don't, maybe we're willing to confess but not to forsake. It goes along great to the point that we got to face some reality of who we really are and reality what we got to change in life. And as long as it's in a general sense, you're okay. But boy, when that word of God, like a microscope, starts cracking it down. You know, I was, I was, I've always liked astronomy, and I, even when I was a kid. And I'll never forget my first telescope. I must have been about 13 or 14. My mom dad bought it at pennies for me. And uh, I remember it was raining all that day, and I was so excited to use it. And, and then about 6 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 7 o'clock in the evening, uh, the clouds cleared off, and there was the moon. And, man, I'll tell you, I, I, I was really excited. I went out and set that thing up, and I really didn't know how to work it. It wasn't one where you put different eyepieces in it. It was one that you pulled it out at different lengths, and it was higher magnification. So I, I, I and I didn't really know that at the time. Uh, you know, for me, I never read the instructions, just get it out, get it on, and just try to do it, you know, and read them later. So I got it set up, and I found the moon in there, and it was just about that big. And I'm trying to convince myself, well, that looks pretty good. And look at it, and it ain't much bigger than what I'm looking at it here. But I said, okay, that's pretty good. And then I don't know what happened. I just pulled it out, and pfft, there, it really got big. I pulled it out again, and I'm figuring it out now. Keep pulling it out again. Pretty soon, I had it all the way out, and you could just see a big crater. 
it was it was incredible. It was just a fact with, uh, and they could see the rills, and you could see the beer cans, and you could, it was just a mess up there. And I'll never forget that in my own life as an illustration. You know what's what the Word of God does? When we look at our lives through 25 power, we look pretty good. And we say in our heart, you know, hey, I'm not bad. I'm going to bless myself. And, you know, I, and we look pretty good. But, boy, you take the Word of God and start cranking the magnification to it because that's what the book does. And that's why you're going to find people that as long as you're looking at them through 25X, they're okay. But boy, when God, through the Word of God, you start working with them and start dealing with some problems and the magnification starts and you start seeing the beer cans and the craters and the rills and the wrecks and the rocks and the rubble on the moon in a person's life, that Bible really comes to the place where it just exposes who we really are. And the problem is a lot of God's people don't want to admit that. They don't want to deal with that. They want to go as the man here. They just want to keep on going and, and, and thinking to themselves, you know, hey, I'm, I'm okay. I'll bless myself. You know, I, I, uh, I, I walk in the imagination of my own heart. I'm okay. I'm doing just fine. And, of course, the Bible says the Lord shall separate him unto evil. One of the greatest values of your Christian life, if you ever can develop it, is let God put as much magnification on your life as he can and be okay with it. I always tell people, I say, when they first get saved, you know, they, they're, they're, they're worried about the big things in their life. And I totally get it. You know, they'll sit down with me and they'll say, well, you know, I, I, I want to do this right. And it's always big things. You know, I want to come to church. I want to get in my Bible. I want to, you know, fix this problem in my life. And those are the major things in their life. And you know what? Once they grow and get discipled and get the Word of God working in their life and that magnification start to kick in, about four or five years later, you'll talk to them. You know what the big things are in their life? It's not going to church anymore. It's not doing this anymore or going where they shouldn't go. You know what the real big issues now that are monumental in their life? I didn't get in my Bible enough this week. I didn't pray like I should this week. You see, we went from five years ago to the big things, and then God put the magnification, fixed those things, and now the magnification is so high, it's looking at the things in your prayer life, in your walk with the Lord, your time in the Word of God. That's spiritual growth. That's God continually putting the magnification to our lives through the Word of God and continually telling us what we need to fix. That's real spiritual growth. Verse 14. As a roaring lion and a ranging, ranging bear, so is a wicked ruler over the poor people. Now, doctrinally, of course, all this is true of all this. This is the Antichrist. You're the lion in First Peter 5, 8. And you know, the bear, Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7. That's, this is all a reference to the Antichrist in the tribulation of the nation of Israel. There's over 100 references to this man in the Bible alone, the Antichrist. Uh, there's 18 men who foreshadow him uh, in the Old Testament to be able to see and understand how he operates. So doctrinally, I want you to know all this is dealing with the Antichrist, but the practical side of it, inspirationally, it's how the devil works today. Two aspects. It says there's a roaring lion uh, and a ranging bear. In the world today, the devil operates in two modes. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says that he shows up as an angel of light. That's religion. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says he's a roaring lion. In America, the devil doesn't come as a roaring lion. He comes as an angel of light. And it's through religion, through all the things of the world, all the do-gooders, that this is how he, he does what he does. The roaring lion you will found in the third world countries like Haiti, Rio, Africa, where he holds them uh, in fear and superstition. A number of years ago, uh, and I've been in all of these places, uh, down in Haiti... Well, I sent a team there one time uh, to go work with a missionary. And they got into, uh, wherever they got, I think it was Port-au-Prince, and they had to rent a, a, a truck or a van or whatever, and then they had like a seven-hour ride up to the mission station. And the missionary told them that uh, uh, there was a certain town that they were going to go through to get there. And he stressed the fact that make sure under no circumstances that you go through that town, stop in that town, or be anywhere near that town when nightfall comes. And uh, 
it was filled with demonic activity, filled with uh, all of the things that, you know, in Haiti, voodoo and all of those things. And there was a tree outside the city that was supposedly, according to them, a haunted tree, the people in the city. Now, I don't believe in ghosts and none of that stuff, but this was all demonic. It was, it was just like it is. This is how the devil comes. And my people got there, got the van and started driving through there, came through the city. It was about, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. And when they got out to the city, believe it or not, right by that tree, the van quit running. And now you're in Haiti. It's not AAA that you call. <laughs> and so now they're panicking. And they're on the phone with a missionary, and he says, well, you're still two hours away. He says, I'll get in the car and get, try to get up there, da-da-da-da. And they said, they were all praying, and they're all asking the Lord to, um, you know, to do whatever. And uh, it was a thing where it just about 5 o'clock, 5.30, as they were just, somebody went back in and started it, and the van started, and they drove out of there. That's how it operates in those third world countries. I don't know if probably most of you have never been to Rio de Janeiro down there, but uh, we did a, a, a great uh, thing down there with one of the churches years ago, and uh, it was with uh, Dr. Fanini down there in the largest Baptist church in, in Rio. And Rio, without a doubt, is probably the most demonic place on the planet. And uh, when you fly into Rio, there on that mountain, you have the big Christ. You've all seen it, big statue of Christ, probably 200 feet high. I mean, you can see it from everywhere, outstretched arms. And of course, it isn't Christ, it's the Antichrist, but to them, it's Christ. And it is the most pagan, most godless, most demonic place, maybe outside of New Orleans. And uh, we went in there at this church and, and did discipleship, and we stayed up on the, in a hotel up on a hill. And word got around that we were here, Christians doing this, and every night, if you'd go out on your balcony, you had the, the hotel was up here, kind of had a road that curved around going down to an open area, and then you took another road down here. So you were higher, but there was an open area there. Every night you could see the, the Satanists with their candles down where the foot where we were staying, trying to put their evil spirits on us. I'd get up and run in the morning and then run down through there, and there'd be dead chickens. There'd be, it was incredible. And it's a thing where that's how he attacks in those third world countries, through terror, through voodoo, through witch doctors, through the fear of a roaring lion. In America, he's an angel of light. Then he says, the ranging bear. And I told you in Revelation chapter 13 and in Daniel 7, you find the bear. And the bears are territorial. And uh, they, they roam, or the word is range. They range, roam, uh, uh, you know, back and forth in their territories. And so does the devil. Uh, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 clearly shows you that he's got some territory that he's ranging in. He even tells God that. I showed you, and somebody asked a question in Psalm 104 a couple of Thursday nights ago, and I showed you that where he likes to, where he ranges, where he plays. How's I've created, you know, the, I've created the Viathan, the play therein, the devil. Now, you think a big bear, like a 1,200-pound bear, you'd think that you could get away from one of them? You can't. I always feel sorry for the bears when they have to put them down on Yellowstone because some stupid tourist wound down the window to give him a fig bar. And he decided that your arm was probably better than the fig bar. You know, they look cute. They really do. How about this lady the other week that climbed in the lion's den? And she's over there. You showed her view. She's over there saying, come on. And the lion's looking at her like, hmm, should I eat the bottom half or the top half first? I think I'll do the bottom half because brainless people really don't taste that well. And she's there pretending that this lion is okay. And I know they look cute. You think they look like your, your little cat that you had or uh, they're so cute. And, you know, and they, they, they see the little bear cubs and, and you, know, you don't see the mama around anywhere. Oh, cute little bear cubs. And you pick them up. And then mama is right around the bush over here looking for berries. And here she comes. And she may be 1,200 pounds, 1,400 pounds and be a big bear. You f they move really fast. And you never know. They'll track you down. They'll find you. They range through those things. Did you see the picture in the Internet the last week where these two guys up in Alaska were fishing? on a stream in Alaska, and a guy takes his picture, and right behind them is this huge Kodiak bear sticking his head out right behind They didn't know he was there. I'll tell you, 
I don't go in the water because of sharks, and I don't go in the woods outside Missouri because of bears. They even saw a bear down in southern Missouri, so it won't be long. I won't be going out of my house. <laughs> the devil operates that way. He moves freely back and forth to do whatever he wants to do. Now look at the last part of verse 14. Poor people that are oppressed will be the Jews, again, in the tribulation period, doctrinally. Inspiration will be anybody who, uh, who, who will oppress God's people by uh, taking the truth from them and making them poor spiritually. And when you go to Matthew chapter 5 through 10, you'll see it's the nation of Israel. Blessed are the poor in spirits, for there shall be the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. So it's definitely talking about Israel in a doctrinal sense, but inspiration, it's anybody. It happens all the time. People will take the truth from you, which are the true riches, which is the key to your fellowship, the key to your joy, and the key to your happiness. And by doing that, they make you poor by taking the very book that God gave you out of your hands. Then he says in verse 16, the prince that wanteth understanding is also a great oppressor. But he that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. And now in verse 16, he gives us the contrast. And Proverbs does this a lot. Bible does it a lot. We have a contrast. Again, doctrine it's the Antichrist and uh, someone who oppresses the poor, uh, you know, uh, uh, and then somebody who hates covetousness. There's a contrast between two people here. Contrast between the two words. You know, the, 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 anybody who oppresses people has a desire to control people. And they desire to control them because they want what they have. And they, they oppress them to, to take them. They want... Many times they want more in their life than God, they think that God gives them. So they oppress people to get what they want and take advantage of them. And, you know, and in time, covetousness will not only turn your heart from God, and this is the point as it all ties together, covetousness will not only turn your heart from God, but covetousness will harden your heart to God because you get so caught up in everything that you want and you don't see the very people that God gave you that you're supposed to be there for. Now you look at them being there for you. And this happens in churches a lot. And when you wind up oppressing the people to get what you want instead of being satisfied with what you have and helping the people that God gave you. It's just that simple. And then he says, but the man who hateth covetousness, uh, God will prolong his days. And that, that's a great verse. In the Old Testament, longevity of life came from doing what was right with God. And the principle carries over to the New Testament in, in, in many cases, that uh, you want to live the best life and the longest life and the happiest life you can. Uh, do, what, do what Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, said in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, when he says, here's the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments. That'll work for you. So there's three great verses with great principles here on life and how uh, to be happy. And everybody wants to be happy. And how it goes back to our heart attitude toward God. Happiness will start with joy. Joy will then have to come from fellowship. Fellowship will have to come from fearing God. And then that will come from fellowship and relationship with God, walking with Him. And how it all goes back to our heart attitude. Psalms, Psalms 119, the greatest chapter in all the Bible on how to love God. Every, there's 176 verses in it, and every one of them deals with a different aspect to the Word of God to you. And there's 16 references in those things on our heart together with God's heart, the Word of God, and how we prosper and what it will do for us. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all, all your soul, and all your mind. And I will say to you on the authority of the word of God, that is probably the single hardest thing for a child of God to do. It doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. It doesn't, doesn't come into your life where you go to sleep after five, six years of being saved and God brings the angels down with a big dump truck of spiritual dust and puts your roof back and while you sleep it just tinkles all down over you when you wake up spiritual in the morning. It's something you got to work at. It's things you got to get out of your world. It's things that you got to recognize about yourself that have to go. It's things about you that you have to change that if you don't change, you'll be like the person in Deuteronomy. You'll bless yourself, you'll go on with life and you'll just think that everything is fine till you get to the judgment seat of Christ.
The greatest aspect that you and I have in our relationship with God is that every day of our life, every moment of our life, every second of life, the loving with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our soul. And the other verse over there in the New Testament says, adds to it in all of thy strength, because that's what it's going to take. Hardest thing you'll ever do. Greatest thing you'll ever do. And it's something that you'll never master. It's something that you'll never get to the place in your life where you say, hey, I got it made. It'll be something that you'll have to redefine, work at, keep before you, and never lose sight of the rest of your Christian life. But the blessings of happiness through joy, through fellowship, through fearing, through walking will give you the true happiness of life and give you the fruit, the true riches that the world will never get. And that's what this church tries to do for you. Everything we do, we do based on the Bible. I was telling you Thursday night when somebody asked a question, I follow the models in the Bible. I don't make up my own deals. I don't think that I got any brains that I can ever approve on what God did. I just follow the models. I follow the models of everything. And when I teach you the Bible or work with you or help you, I just give you the models. It's the simplest way to live your life with God. Everything else, it just gets really complicated. And there's enough complication. And as I said last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the devil has tried to destroy the church from the simplicity that's in Christ. Our goal was to keep that simplicity right here in front of you. Every head bowed and every eye closed.